Hello, this is Pastor Don from the Atlantic Evangelical Free Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check us out on the web at AtlanticFreeChurch.com. In the meantime, I hope the sermon you're about to hear draws you closer to the Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening, and God bless you. Well, good morning. Quick couple of words about the video we just watched. <clears throat> you might remember about a month ago or a little more, I shared with you that we are uh, encouraging um, a, a Will Graham Festival, a celebration event in October that is going to be in the Des Moines, actually at the, at the Wells Fargo Arena. I think it's October 1, 2, and 3. It's a weekend thing. And uh, we are happy to be a, a partner with that. I know it's Des Moines. It's a little ways off. Maybe lots of people may not go to the Des Moines part, but there's all the parts that lead up to it. Although I hope you will. I think it'll be worth your time if you do. Uh, one of the parts leading up to that is uh, we were actually contacted a few months ago by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and to ask if we would host one of their Christian Life and Witness courses. And that is a course that they offer to the church broadly, uh, to um, learn how to share our faith. It's basically kind of a three-week discipleship course. Uh, it's, and so we're going to be holding, uh, we're going to be hosting one of those. It's right here at our church. We're kind of the main one in Southwest Iowa that's hosting it, so that's fantastic. Um, so people from other churches will be here. In fact, I encourage you to invite people, even here in town, who, you know, maybe they worship at a different church, but they also love the Lord and um, would benefit from this. They're very welcome to this. It's not just our church. And uh, I think there's some details in the bulletin, but it's June 10, 17, and 24, three Thursdays in a row. It's a two-hour time. Um, if you want to know more about it, uh, I was going to say it's free. That's always nice when we hear free. Uh, and you don't have to register for it. They're actually not asking for pre-registration. They're just asking people to put it on their calendars and come out for it. And... Um, the other thing I was going to say is who you can talk to. And so if you have more questions than what a video answered or what I can do in 30 seconds here, please talk to Sonia Smith or John Martins or uh, Joe, Joe Hoy. I don't know if Joe's here today or not. They might be away. But those three are kind of spearheading that project for us from evangelism and, and outreach. So, uh, yeah, and, you know, the other thing I was going to mention was keep praying for those friends. Uh, you might remember about a month ago I preached a sermon where we talked about some of this stuff and, and sharing our faith with other people. Um, one of the ways to do that is to pray, is to be praying. And so if you missed that Sunday or if you've lost your brochure or maybe you've filled it all up and you want another one, uh, there's a stack of these on the literature table on the way out and just a, a good way to remember, to remind ourselves to be praying for people to come to know the Lord. Our text this morning is from Psalm 11. So we're doing a little series in the Psalms here at the beginning of the summer. And this morning, I'd like to take you through Psalm 11. So if you'd turn there, please, in your Bibles. I'm going to read it this morning, and then we'll, we'll pray and jump right into the text. So this is Psalm 11, and it was written to the choir master, and it's a Psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge... How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. 
He shall rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege and the, the freedom to gather like uh, we prayed before. Just what a joy to be able to gather uh, as your, your people, your sons and your daughters, to, to worship you, to study your word together, to fellowship. What a joy. And uh, Lord, we would just ask you now as we do uh, stop everything else and set aside the, the cares and the, uh, maybe the, the excitement of a holiday weekend and just all of these different things, would you help us to put these things, Lord, uh, at your feet as we come now and listen to your word, as we study this psalm together. Would you please open our hearts and our minds that we might see how this, what this means and what it means to us, what it means for our lives. And so build up our trust today, Lord. That's our prayer. And it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Well, a man was doing some landscaping a few years ago. It was in his backyard. And, and this was actually in England, kind of on the east coast there of, of Britain. And so he was digging like you need to do a lot of times. And, and as he was digging, he found a metal object in the dirt. And he, he picked this thing up. Most of us would have done the same. He picked up this metal object to kind of examine it. And, and that's when he realized he was holding a bomb. He would picked up a bomb. And uh, the part of England where he, he was living was um, kind of, you know, one of the parts that the Germans had hit a lot in the Blitz 70 years before, I guess, or 50, 60, whatever it was at the time. And, uh, and so it wasn't unusual that would happen from time to time. People would find things like that. And, and so he saw this, this piece of metal. He's like, oh my goodness, it's a bomb. And so he, he very carefully reached for his, his cell phone and he, he called, uh, I guess it's 999 in Britain. He called the nine, their version of 911. And uh, he explained to the operator he, he had found a bomb in his backyard and, and he was afraid to even put it down. If I put it down, it might blow up, he said. And, uh, and so she, she said, don't worry, we'll get you some help. And, and so she began to make arrangements for a bomb unit to come out. But it took a little while because, uh, you know, it being military ordinance, they kind of had to get military specialists. So it ended up taking almost four hours uh, to get this bomb squad there. Four anxious, fear-filled hours with this guy standing in his yard with this piece of metal. Don't walk up at me now. <laughs> Um, and, and he was, and so they, they come, and the, the bomb squad, uh, you know what, I'm going to need my other notes. I'll keep talking, because I remember my story, but the bomb squad uh, arrived after four hours, and they, they got there, and the, the whole thing ended very quickly, because they took one piece of, one look at his piece of metal, and they said, that's not a bomb, that's a shock absorber from a car. And somehow this thing had gotten trapped and this got buried in this guy's backyard. And so that was the story of that. Sometimes the things we worry about are like that, right? They're like that piece of metal. We're, we're terrified. We, we think we're holding something that's going to blow up in our faces and hurt us, and, and we're just scared of it. But then we find out what's really, you know, we kind of let some time pass, and we find out it wasn't actually that bad. It was kind of harmless and... And, and it's no big deal. Other times, though, let's be honest, the things we worry about are real, right? There, there, there are genuine worries. I remember even talking about some of those just last week. There are real dangers along the road. And so sometimes the things we worry about are, are not so dangerous. Sometimes they are dangerous. 
And this morning, Psalm 11 is going to help us figure out how to deal with both. That's what I love about this psalm. It it really does help us uh, deal with both, whether they're real or not. It shows us how to disarm our worries. And the answer is right there in the opening words of the psalm. We don't have to wait. In the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I take refuge. That's how you disarm uh, your worries. You trust in the Lord. We need to trust in the Lord. This is a good basic psalm about putting our trust and our confidence in Him. And so I want to work through these seven verses. It's a short psalm. Some psalms are really long. Some are short. This is one of the shorter ones. And as we work through these verses, I want to show you three ways to strengthen our trust in the Lord. That's our outline this morning. Three ways to strengthen our trust. Because if you think about it, trust is kind of like a muscle. I really, I think that that's a good picture. Uh, if, if you want stronger muscles, you need to do things that make your muscles stronger. Right? You need to go to the gym, work out, do push-ups, whatever it is you like to do. You've got to use those muscles to make those muscles strong. And it's the same thing with our trust in the Lord. If we want to have stronger trust muscles, then we need to do things that make our trust muscles stronger. And I think that's what David's showing us here, especially in the second half of the psalm. He shows us what he's done to strengthen his own trust in the Lord, and we can do the same thing. So that's our outline this morning, three ways to strengthen our trust muscles. So let's look at it. Let's get started here. Uh, The first way to strengthen our trust muscles is to remind ourselves or remember the Lord's position. Remember the Lord's position. Remember where he is and therefore who he is. That's what we're talking about here. Before we get to that part, though, before we look at the part where it talks about where the Lord is and who he is, uh, we start with, I said it a minute ago, we start with this declaration of confidence. In the Lord, David says. We don't even know why he's saying it yet. This is just how he starts. In the Lord, I take refuge. And it's a really strong statement. And when you see why he says it, you really appreciate how strong a statement it is. And, And that's what we get in the rest of verses one through three. Just to read those again. Um, in the Lord I take refuge. And then he kind of turns to a group of people. He says, so how can you say to my soul, how can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the, the wicked bend the bow, they've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Uh, if the foundations are destroyed, you have to picture these people quaking when they're saying these things. Uh, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David's turns to a group of people and he says, how can you say that to me? We're we're kind of entering, we're we're walking in on the middle of a conversation as you think about Psalm 11. He says, how can you say that to me? And as I say, he's talking to a specific group of people and it's his advisors. Some some like to kind of imagine this as kind of an internal dialogue. David's talking to himself. I think it's better to read it as he's he's talking to a group of people, his counselors, kings have counselors, uh, and, and he's talking, he says to them, how can you say that? Right, so they, he's asked them for advice. They, he, they, they have given him advice, and he's not impressed. He does not like the advice that they've given him one bit. And uh, what's their advice? Well, their advice is run. That's their advice. Uh, flee like a bird to your mountain. I don't know if your Bible has put quotes here, but it should. There should be quotation marks from the beginning of where it says, flee like a bird to your mountain, all the way to the end of verse 3. What can the righteous do? All of that is what his advisors have told him, and he's quoting it back to them now. And so they say, get out while the getting's good. 
That's their advice to David. Now, we don't know what the situation is. This is one of the Psalms where we don't know the specifics. Some say maybe it was when Absalom, was, his son, was rebelling against him. Others suggest it was when Saul was attacking him. So earlier in his life, might have even been something else altogether. We don't know. But whatever the specifics are, it's clear that he's in danger. That much is very clear, and, and it's a genuine danger. It's not an imaginary danger. Uh, they, they, these advisors remind him that the enemies are treacherous, they're wicked, they're violent, uh, they have their bows ready. Uh, it, it, it's, it, the language is, is this idea of they've teed up the bows, or they've queued up the bows, whatever the right verb is, and they're ready to shoot, right? They're ready to fire at him. And, and they're also, so he kind of mixes some, some descriptions here, because not only are they openly ready to shoot, but they're also kind of waiting in ambush. So they're kind of hiding in the dark to, to attack David. And so there's this personal threat that David the king is under. But then it's not even as if it's only David. It's the, whole, the whole society is at risk, right? Do you see that there in verse 3? The very foundations are at risk. Uh, the foundations are being destroyed, they say. The center cannot hold. Uh, everything's falling apart, and there's nothing we can do about it, which is actually how their little quote ends. It's there at the end of verse thing. What can the righteous do? Nothing. Right? That's, what they're, that's, their, that's what they tell David. You've got to run because there's nothing that God's righteous people can do in the face of such threats. Before I go any further, let me just ask you, is there anything that comes to mind with that sort of description in your own life? What sorts of things are you worried about these days? Maybe there's some way in which you identify with David very directly there. You feel personally threatened. You know, maybe you, you work for someone who it just feels like he's out to get you or she's out to get you. Or maybe your job is, is uh, at stake or maybe you're, you're dealing with some shaky thing in your health, your health, you're going through a health crisis right now and you feel personally threatened. Or, or maybe you don't. Maybe your life's going perfectly well. It's a wonderful time, but, but you look around you. You look around and the world looks a lot like verse 3. Right? You look around and you go, oh my goodness, the foundations are being destroyed. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, and there's nothing the righteous can do. There's nothing the church can do to stop that agenda or that thing that's going on, whatever it is. Let's be a little concrete with this. If you're a note taker, you might have noticed that outline in the bulletin this morning, and there's a little box at the top. It looks like a little paper note, clip art that I found somewhere. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you take a minute to, to write one or two things you're worried about? If you're at home, you could just do this with just any piece of paper or whatever. Or the Bible app, there's probably a way to write notes in there. But, but just take, you know, I'm just going to pause for like 15 seconds here. But if there's something in your own life, whether personal or the foundations are crumbling kind of stuff that you're especially concerned about, go ahead and write it in that little box. And then as we work through the rest of this, just kind of glance at that list now and again and, and test the rest of the psalm against your list and see if the rest of the psalm helps us deal with those crumbling foundations or those personal attacks that maybe you wrote in that little box. Because I think that's what David's doing. David takes the, 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 the terrible description from his advisors of how everything's fallen apart and David is under attack, so run away, run away. David takes that list and he tests it against his trust in the Lord. That's the rest of the psalm. It's verses 4 through 7. And uh, let, let's just look now, because what he does, he basically, his advisors give him advice, and he spends the rest of the psalm, verses 4 through 7, telling them why that's lousy advice. Right? That's lousy advice, guys. You're wrong. And let me tell you why. In the Lord I take refuge. 
And then he gives us three reasons why the Lord is so worthy of refuge. This is how, this is how he builds up his muscles. So number one is that he reminds himself where the Lord is. He remembers the Lord's position. Verse four, so, so he gets to the end of their quote. I just love the, the separation here. So, and I always kind of try to read this like with a whiny voice, you know. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Right, this is them. And then David says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And so he looks up. He looks up from his advisors. He looks up from his enemies and he fixes his eyes on the Lord. That's where his trust starts. Yeah, their, their bows are drawn. Yeah, they're lurking in the shadows. Yes, the, the foundations are looking a little shaky. But the Lord is on his heavenly throne. And, and what he's pointing to is, we, we, we could call it providence, we could call it sovereignty. Uh, what he's reminding himself is that the Lord's in charge. See, the temple, when he says the Lord is in his temple, um, he's, he's not talking about the earthly temple, because the earthly temple has not been built yet. The earthly temple's not built until David dies and his son Solomon builds it. So when David talks about the temple, he's almost always talking about heaven. Because the earthly temple is patterned after the true temple, the temple in heaven. And so uh, when David says the Lord is in his holy temple, he means heaven. The Lord is in heaven. And, and then he references the throne. It's really just a, a lot of times with, with Hebrew poetry, you're going to get repetition of ideas. And so he says the same thing. The Lord's throne, his place of governance and authority and power. Uh, it's not an, in some earthly kingdom, it's in heaven, he says. And so what he's emphasizing with that couplet is he's emphasizing the sovereignty of the Lord. He is he's in charge. And this is what David reminds himself. He, he remembers that no matter how bad things seem to be going, whether for the world or for him, the Lord is in control. The Lord is on his throne. And that's where we start. That's what we need to do when we're tempted to worry instead of trusting. Remember the Lord's position. He's, he's not standing on the sidelines or off in the corner, kind of scratching his head, trying to figure out what to do next. He's on his throne. He's on his throne, and we can trust him. So that's the first one. The second way that we can strengthen our trust muscles is to then rely on the Lord's power. Rely on the Lord's power. You see, not only is the Lord on his throne, but he uses the power and the authority that comes from that throne to protect his people, to, to help, to help his people as they're under attack. And that's really the, 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 the majority of the psalm. It's the heart of the psalm. Uh, it's verses 4 through 6, or the rest of verse 4 and then 5 and 6. Uh, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see... His eyelids test the children of man. Uh, the Lord tests, so, so the, his eyes test humanity, and then he splits it out. Uh, the Lord tests the righteous, we'll talk about that in a minute, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. The Lord's got all the cards. The Lord's got the strong hand. He holds all the cards. He's the one with all the power. And so it may look as if evil people are getting away with murder and all sorts of other things, but they're not. That's what he says in, in verses 4, 5, and 6 there. They're not getting away with it. Why? Because the Lord is watching. That's the assurance there. The Lord is watching. <clears throat> Verse 4 says, His eyes see. 
his eyes see. And, and it's, it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech for uh, he's watching, right? He's, he's, eye, he's watching carefully. If it happens, he sees it. <clears throat> That's the second part of the translation I'm reading, for, reading from says, uh, his eyelids test, an interesting picture, his eyelids test the children of man or the, the, the human beings is, is what that means. And you say, what do you mean eyelids test? I mean, it, when I think of eyelids, I think of the part I see when somebody closes their eyes, right? So if I close my eyes, you can see my eyelids. Uh, but, but he's not talking about closing your eyes. That would actually be the opposite of seeing, to have his, for God to close his eyes. It's the, what it actually is is the idea of squinting. Right? So there's this picture here. And I know some translations just kind of don't, don't want to deal with the eyelids, and so they have something like his gaze looks or something. But the, the actual figure of speech, it's the idea of imagine you're standing on the edge of a field and you want to see like a bird on the opposite side you know maybe you're hunting or you know something like that and so what do you do you you squint if you don't have binoculars uh, you you squint so that you can see you might even go like this right to cut down the glare from the other kind of light you might, what's going on out there right you would squint and that's what that is it's a picture of an intense gaze it's not a casual gaze it's an intense gaze now, God doesn't need to squint to see better. It's a, it's a figure of speech. But the point is, he doesn't miss a thing. He doesn't miss anything. Nothing escapes his watchful eye. That's what David's saying there with, with those two. His eyes see, his eyelids see. That, that, that's what that picture is. He sees everything. Now, that can be good news or bad news, depending on who you are and how you live. The fact that God sees everything is either good news or, get, or bad news. Uh, if you're seeking the Lord, and you're trusting in Him, and you're following in Jesus, this is really good news that He sees everything. It's good news, because what does it mean? It means He sees your faithfulness. He sees your obedience. He sees that time when you take a stand, uh, and, and everybody else is mocking you, but you're like, no, I'm, I'm going to trust in Jesus. He sees it. He sees it all. And, 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 and it's the idea of seeing, and so when it says the Lord tests the righteous, there at the beginning of, I think it's the beginning of verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. In that, it's, it's test in the sense of find approval in. Right? It's like testing a student who's studied really hard and knows the material really well. Uh, if you test her, she will pass the test. And, and so it's this idea of protective watching over. I picture a mom on the playground. She's taking her toddlers to the playground, and yeah, she's chatting with her friend, but she never takes her eye off that toddler. She always knows where he is and how high he's climbed and whether somebody else is getting too close and whatever else it is. It's that kind of a watchful eye. And so it's good news. It's good news if you're trusting in the Lord. However, if, if you're someone who defies the Lord, if you reject his word, if you disobey his commandments, well, he sees that too, the psalm says. He sees all of it. Even the parts that nobody else sees, he sees it all. It's that idea, again, of, of the intense gaze. And, and when he sees it, he's not, again, he's not wringing his hands, wondering what he's going to do next. Oh, my goodness, look what the Republicans did now. Or, oh, no, look what the Democrats did now. Or, oh, no, look what China's doing now. What am I going to do next? I don't know. That's not, what, that's not the kind of seeing God does. God's is an active seeing. And so when he watches over his people, it's an it's a active protecting. And when he watches over the wicked, it's so that he can judge them. And that's where David goes next. What does he say? His soul hates the wicked. 
Strong statement. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Uh, it says, let him rain coals on the wicked. Uh, actually, another translation says it, it makes it predictive, and I think that's the better way to take it. He will rain, uh, and actually it's probably better snares. I'll tell you why in a minute. He will rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, that cup of God's judgment. That's what they're going to drink. And so the first half is this promise of protection for God's people, for those who trust in him, but for those who reject him, uh, there will be judgment, he says. That's what, that, so how can David look at all these people coming against him, and, he, and how can he still say, I trust in the Lord? Well, he looks and he, he, there's almost a little bit of a sense, I, I, I would guess, where he feels almost sorry for them, because he knows what they're going to experience because of their rebellion against the Lord. The Lord sees, the Lord will judge. And, and David gives us two pictures. I always like you to understand the text. I could stop there, but we've got plenty of time. So he actually gives us two pictures of judgment, just so you understand them. Um, the first picture is, is where he says, you see where he says there in the uh, beginning of verse 6, let him rain coals, like I said. Um, that's what the ESV says. The Hebrew word there, though, where it says coals, is a word that's often used for the, for the idea of a snare or a trap. And you could contextually, um, I'm actually, to be honest, I'm not sure why. I couldn't figure out why they chose to go with coals, because the word means snare. The word means trap. I think they went with coals because of the picture of fire that comes after. But it's actually better to go with the more common usage. It's better to go with snare. He will, he will rain down, right? So not just one snare, but he will rain down snares, it says. And you say, why a snare? What's, what's up with that? Well, I think it connects back to verse 1. If, if, you, if you kind of enter into David's mindset here, uh, his advisors, what was their advice? Flee like a bird. Run away like a bird to the mountain. Fly away, little bird, little David. You're not going to be able to stand up to your enemies. Fly away into the mountains where you can be safe. And David says to them, I'm not a bird. They're the birds. My enemies are the birds, and, and God's going to catch them. That's why it's rained down snares. Actually, it's specifically the kind of snare that was used for a bird, to, to catch birds. And so I'm not the bird who needs to run away. They are. That's why it's rained snares down. And so what is it? It's a picture of God's going to stop it. So as we look around at all the wickedness and the depravity and the awful things that go on in the world and the abuse and the violence and all the rest of this, God's going to stop it. He will rain snares down on the wicked. It will not go on. It goes on for a time, but it will not go on forever. So that's one picture of judgment. And then the other picture is, is fire and brimstone, right? To, to use that old-fashioned but very helpful term, fire and brimstone, which is actually what it is. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. It's fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. <clears throat> I think he's, in, he's purposely invoking Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, that's the famous biblical story where God rains down fire and sulfur and a scorching wind would be part of that uh, on, on rebellious, wicked cities, two rebellious, wicked cities. And, and I think David's tapping that with his language. And so it's this idea of fiery judgment. That's what's in store for those who, who will not trust in the Lord, but instead attack God's people and undermine those foundations and reject God's word that they will be judged. Now, someone's going to say, I know it because I said it myself, uh, hold on a second, <laughs> wait a minute here, I, I thought God loved everybody. Right, wait, what's this language here? You know, he, he, he hates 
the wicked and the one who loves violence. What happened to John 3.16? God so loved the world. How do you reconcile those two? How can God love them and God hate them at the same time? How does that work? Well, the answer is John 3.16 is spot on. God does love everybody, right? He, he sent his one and only son into the world to save everyone who believes. But those who do not believe, those who reject God's son, they don't get to enter into the benefit of John 3.16, right? They, they don't get to experience the benefits of God's love. He loves them, but they reject his love. And in rejecting his love, all they're left with, God is, a, is, is an intense um, complex being. <laughs> he's, he's, he's God, and so he has this unfathomable infinite love, but he also has this unfathomable infinite white-hot anger against evil and wickedness. And if they reject his love, all they're left with is, is God's uh, hatred for, for sin. Now, let's take that, that, that's kind of that intense picture, and apply it to worry. Because again, David's play, um, faced with this worrisome, even fearful sort of a situation, how does this help him deal with that, right? So let's think about how it helps with our worries. Well, sometimes the things we worry about, and this is David's position, sometimes the things we worry about are directly caused by the sin of other people, right? Other people sin against us. They, you know, maybe there's violence done against them or whatever it might be, or, you know, I, I think of the spouse who's abandoned by her, her husband or, or he's abandoned by his wife, or I think of someone who's maybe you know, bullied at school or bullied at work. Other people's sins are, are directly hurting us. Or we think of brothers and sisters around the world who live under oppressive governments. You know, there's things we may, might wish we could change about our government, but here we are, freely worshiping. We have brothers and sisters in many countries who kind of are, are you know, wondering right now if, if terrorists are going to come and burn the church down while they're in it, or maybe they're not allowed to gather at all. We think of people who live in those kinds of situations. And, and if you think of people in those situations where other people's sin is causing them harm and causing them anxiety, this is helpful because it assures us that God is going to do something about it, right? It assures us there is justice. It assures us that right will, will triumph in the end. It will be made right. Uh, as one preacher put it, hell can be a very comforting doctrine. When you understand that it means that God will judge the wicked. They will not get away with it forever. And so it helps <clears throat> when our worries are, when we're, when we're struggling with anxiety or fear even because of other people's sin, this reminds us that the Lord is in charge and he's going to do something about it. It also helps in the, in the principle of his power because not all of our worries are somebody else's fault. Uh, sometimes they're just part of kind of life in a fallen planet kind of a thing, uh, you know, natural disasters and so on, or illnesses, diseases. And sometimes we're the cause of our own problems. I think we have to admit that sometimes the things we worry about are our own fault. We've made bad decisions, perhaps, that have put us in a place where we now are facing some anxious things. But the principle still applies. God is still powerful. And whether it's someone else's sin or our own sin or just the general effect of sin that's caused these worries, God is more powerful than the sin. God can handle it. And so rely on the Lord's power. Lean into him. That's the second way to build up our trust muscles. Remember his position and rely on his power. <clears throat> Finally, uh, the third way we see in this psalm to strengthen our trust muscles is to rest in the Lord's promise. Rest in his promise. And that's what David describes for us. He is where he lands in verse 7. 
and, and the word for is there. There's this summary aspect to this. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. There's the promise. The upright shall behold his face. And so this psalm, Psalm 11, ends on the upbeat. It was, it was kind of a downer there for a while, but, uh, but, but it ends on the upbeat. David announces that those who trust the Lord will be rewarded. There's a reward coming, and the reward is that God's righteous people, in the context of the psalm, those who trust in him, those who trust in him are going to get to see something. They're going to get to see God. They're going to get to behold his face. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will see God. That's that kind of idea. They will behold his face. And and trace David's logic here. The reward starts with the Lord. It starts with who the Lord is. It starts really with his character. See how he says that. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. And not only is the Lord righteous, he loves righteous deeds. Why does he love righteous deeds? Well, it's because he's righteous. Right? And so the Lord is righteous, the Lord loves righteous deeds, and that's why righteousness is the requirement for seeing him. If you, if you want to know him, right? if you and I want to, to, to know God personally in this life, and then that's going to just blow up in heaven in a, in a good and beautiful way, if we want to know God personally, then what we need is to be righteous. Right? That, that's how it works. Why? Because righteous God is right. Why do we need to be righteous to see God? Well, because God is righteous, and God loves righteousness. And if you want to know God, you got to know and love and care about the things that he he knows and loves and cares about. Think about it this way. Um, Let's say you're interested in someone, it's more for for you single people, I suppose, but maybe even us marrieds can learn from it. Um, If if you are interested in someone who really loves baseball, she just loves baseball, she's been a Royals fan since she was two, and and you're interested in getting to know her better, you might do well to get to know baseball. Maybe you've never cared about baseball, but now you might want to get to know a little bit of baseball. You know, look back in the history of the team. When did they win? Who were their good players? Maybe even watch a few games. If you want to know her, then you want to get to know what she cares about. And that's kind of, I think, how this works with God. Uh, Who gets to see God? Well, it's those who care about the things God cares about. And what does God care about? God cares about righteousness, David tells us in verse 7. And if we do that, if we if righteousness becomes this defining quality of of who we are, uh, we will see his face. And that's what he means when he says the upright. Now, he does change words on us. The Lord is righteous. The Lord loves righteous deeds. And then he uses this new word, upright. The upright will see his face. But here's the thing about upright. Upright's just the synonym for righteous. It's a, it's a, it's a, the Hebrew word is a synonym for righteous. This particular word is kind of uh, picturesque it, it, because, or descriptive is maybe what I want, because this Hebrew word means straight, upright. Now, your Bible probably says upright, but it could have said straight. The straight shall see, uh, shall behold his face. And the reason it would use that kind of language is one of the Bible's metaphors and the language it uses for sin is the idea of being bent bent. Uh, we are bent, right? To be, to be sinful is to be crooked or bent. And so we are bent because of our sin, and we sin because we're bent. I could, we could go and look at verses in the New Testament and, and the Old that use this kind of language. And so sin bends us. We're crooked because of sin. But if you trust in Jesus, right? So if, you've, if you're born again, if you've, you know, to use that language, if you trust in Jesus Christ, I'm trying to give us New Testament categories for thinking about this psalm. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you've put your faith in him, God has unbent you. 
You're not bent anymore. You're not bent. You're straight. <laughs> the Holy Spirit straightened you out. He, he, he made you upright. And so when it talks about verse 7, when you read that verse 7, don't take that as some kind of oppressive, okay, I'm going to have to be really good. And you, know, all, you could almost back into, by accident, works righteousness with verse 7 if you didn't read it through New Testament categories. But David's not saying only the really good, 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 good people, I don't know if there are any, I wouldn't qualify, but only the, he's not saying only the really good ones get to see God. What he's saying is only the ones who trust in the Lord who are made therefore righteous by their faith in the Lord, those are the ones who see him. And so you are righteous if you trust in Jesus Christ. And because you are righteous, thanks to your trust in Jesus Christ, what's the promise that you and I are going to rest in? It's the promise that we will see his face. We will behold him face to face. We will we, we know him, right? So here comes the enemies. Here comes the, you know, we look around at the crumbling foundations. Yes, but... We get to know our creator, the almighty God of the universe that we sang about before. We get to know him in a personal way. And that's this idea of face-to-face. -face. That's why that language is used. Uh, it's, it's, uh, when you see, a and when face is used in this kind of language, it's a picture of intimacy, right? If, if, if we were having a conversation, we're both going to look at one another's faces. That's how you know a person. It's a, it's a, it's a metaphor for knowing someone personally. And so he's saying you will know your God personally. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal because there's a big difference between just knowing about someone and knowing someone personally. The Christian, the, the Christian faith says we get to know our God personally. We don't, he's not just a doctrine we know about. He's a person we know. There's a big difference between, the, between knowing about and knowing personally. Uh, several years ago now, I attended a, a workshop, a preaching workshop that was sponsored by our denomination, the EFCA. And uh, the main speaker was a guy who uh, was actually really famous at the time, maybe still a little bit now. His name was Erwin Lutzer. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Lutzer, uh, for years and years he was, the pa he was a pastor in Chicago. He's pastor of the Moody Memorial Church. Uh, he's retired now. I think he does a little bit of writing, but he's retired now from his church. But I, I especially, in like, this was probably 15 years ago when, when, this, when I had this experience, um, he was one of the preeminent preachers of his generation. I really admired Lutzer, still do. I just think he was one of the best of the best from his generation. And so he was the speaker at this workshop. And so it was this one-day workshop. We got to go to this thing. Lutzer was going to be talking and preaching the whole day. We were, he was going to preach a sermon, then we'd dissect it and talk with him. Why'd you do that? Why'd you say that? All that kind of stuff. And it was kind of an intimate setting, too. He, like I say, he was kind of famous. He would speak to much larger crowds, but it was really only about 150 of us, about 150 E-free pastors in a relatively small conference room with Erwin Lutzer. And I, it, the whole thing was about six hours long. Uh, but you have to th you think about this. Even though it was a small group of people, relatively small room, after six hours, we're still all just faces. Right? He, he doesn't know who we are. We're all just faces. We'd heard some of his good stories, heard a few of his good jokes, but we didn't really know him, and he didn't really know us. Six hours wasn't enough time. We were, we were just faces in the crowd. Close to the end of this workshop, though, there was a Q&A time. And so, you know, kind of, what, do you, what would you like to ask about? And so, you know, people are asking, different guys are asking, and four or five questions in, uh, Lutzer, you know how that, you've been in this kind of setting, you know, you ask this one, you ask that one back there, and, and then he kind of turns over here to the sort of front left, and he, he acknowledged a man who had his hand up, and then about two seconds later, he recognized the man 
who had his hand up. And it was really kind of a, a, this strange experience for the rest of us in the room, and it was almost kind of awkward, because he's kind of like, you know, you, down over here, what's your... Bob? Is that you? And that really was what he did. Like, his whole demeanor changed. Uh, they actually started, this was the weird part, he's kind of like, how's Betty doing? How's your wife? You know, how are the kids? And they had this, this, and the rest of us were like, you know, flies on the wall kind of a thing while they had this, you know, and, and they ended up kind of realizing it was inappropriate and let's, let's grab dinner later was, was sort of the solution to it. But, but it, was, it was like night and day between just knowing about, you know, that one, that one, that one. My old friend from seminary. We haven't seen each other in a bunch of years. How you doing? It, it, was, it was that sort of a thing. That's how it is with us and the Lord. That's how it is with us. Because we are righteous in Jesus Christ. That verse 7, because of what God has done for you, and in you, through Jesus Christ, you are now righteous. And so when God looks out over his creation, when he surveys all that his hand has made, he recognizes you. That's this idea. He sees us face to face. Now, God's omniscient, of course, he, rec- he knows everybody intimately, even the wicked. But the picture here is of this personal. You're not just a face in the crowd to your God. He knows you personally. That's my daughter. That's my son. Now, what does all that have to do? Why is that so helpful to David in verse 7 and helpful to you and me with our worries? Well, simply this. If the king of the universe knows us and cares about us in such an intimate and personal way, we do not need to worry. That's why David lands there. How can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountains, fly away from my enemies? How can you say that to me when that God loves me and knows me and watches over me in such a personal way. And so we can trust him with those things that worry us, whether they are real or not. Well, I want to close this morning with a a story that uh, actually kind of, I'm going to do double duty here with this story. I think it's a pretty good one for Memorial Day weekend, actually, but it's also a nice picture of what we've just talked about, trusting in the Lord. Uh, Way back when the United States entered World War II, so back in the early 1940s, uh, a number of famous people enlisted in the military. I, I'd, I'd like to hope that kind of thing would happen today. I don't know if it would, but it did then. Baseball players, football players, movie stars uh, signed up to fight against the Nazis. And uh, one of those famous people was Jimmy Stewart, the actor. Uh, you probably know him best for It's a Wonderful Life, that kind of Christmas movie to us. Uh, but he already established himself as a very well-respected actor before. And then World War II broke out, and he signed up. And I can't remember if it was Navy or, or Air Force, how those things were arranged then. But he was actually a pilot. He was a combat pilot during the war. And so he did his training, Jimmy Stewart did. And uh, when his training was done, it was time to head out. And so he went to see his, his parents one last time before he went. And uh, he went to say goodbye to his father, especially he was talking to his dad. And his, his father had some things he wanted to say to Jimmy, uh, but he couldn't get him out, right? He got all choked up, and uh, he, he, he said, just hold on a second, I'll be back. And he went and he wrote a note. His dad wrote a note, and he, he brought it back, and he said, here, uh, don't read it now, read it on the way. This is, this is what I want to say to you. And so on the way, uh, Stuart read this note from his father, and here's part of what it said. It might be the whole thing, actually. Uh, he, he, his dad wrote to Jimmy Stewart. Uh, My dear Jim, uh, soon after you read this letter, you will be on your way to the worst sort of danger. Jim, I'm banking on the enclosed copy of the 91st Psalm. 
The thing that takes the place of fear and worry is the promise of these words. I am staking my faith on these words. I feel sure that God will lead you through this mad experience. I can say no more. I only continue to pray. Goodbye, my dear. God bless you and keep you. I love you more than I can tell you, Dad. Well, Jimmy Stewart survived the war. He came back, and he was actually a decorated war hero. He flew like 20 combat missions, something like that. And uh, he came home. When he came home, he, he went to see his father, and he told his father that during the height of battle, during the hardest times that he faced during the war, he leaned on what had become a tattered copy. He kept pulling it out, that copy of Psalm 91 his dad had given him. He kept leaning on those words. And he said, especially verses 1 and 2, especially verses 1 and 2. And in case you don't remember, verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 91 say, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's exactly what David says in Psalm, 9, in Psalm 11. It's the same thing. In the Lord I take refuge. In my God do I trust. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, that's my prayer for myself and for uh, the worship team coming up with me now and everyone here in this room and online uh, that you would help us to trust in you. Build up our trust. Make us people who take refuge in you, whether it's in uh, the, the something huge like going into war or dealing with cancer or losing a child or the hundreds of really huge things or even just the little niggling things that we'll face this afternoon and tomorrow and the temptations that come our way and all the different things, whether, whatever it is, we're, Lord, help us, make us into people who say, in the Lord, in the Lord I take refuge. Do that, Lord, for your glory in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.